Well, good morning again, everyone. Um, beginning a new series today and next week called Heaven Expanding. And I'll begin in the place, kind of a quick snapshot of my growing up years. I grew up in all different places. I was born in upstate New York, kind of near Niagara Falls, and then we made a quick stop in Indiana, and then I went over to Wilmington, North Carolina, and spent about 10 of my formative years there, hometown Michael Jordan. They also made Dawson's Creek there, A Walk to Remember, and Iron Man 3, just saying, has nothing to do with today, but Wilmington, North Carolina, hooray, hooray. Then, during my high school, I moved to the great state of Georgia. Any shout-outs for Georgia? few Georgians, okay, in the house, not too much shout-out, but Georgia, anyone know the, the um, state theme song for Georgia? You maybe could guess it, Georgia on my mind, <laughs> Ray Charles at his best, apparently wherever he went, he thought about Georgia, clearly he didn't get out very much, I've been to Georgia, I mean, Hawaii, right, maybe New Zealand, okay, that's on your mind, but I mean, I guess... He stayed in Georgia because Georgia apparently was on his mind all the time. (laughs) Now, you can tell a lot about a person when you get to know what's always on their mind. I mean, think about when you first started or maybe when you first fell in love for some of you, right? I mean, the the Susie, the Johnny, the Freddie, whatever the name is, right? I mean, always on your mind. You can't concentrate. You can't study. You can't sleep, right? Et cetera, et cetera. You're always thinking about that person, And of course, romance isn't the only arena where we always have something on our mind. For some, you know, work is always on your mind. For others, it could be money or possessions. For students, it could be schoolwork or studying or perhaps spring break, something like that. Um, For leaders, it might be the next goal or the next hill to take, the next strategic plan. I mean, on and on it goes. For the socialites among us, it might be the next party that's always on your mind. And all that leads to the question that you can probably anticipate I'm going to ask, what is always on your mind? I mean, what do you think about most of the time? If we think about Jesus for for a moment, I mean, if he were here in the flesh, if we could develop some, I don't know, Silicon Valley-based technology that could read Jesus' mind if he was here, right, what would be on his mind? Well, you might be able to guess it. It wasn't romance, it wasn't work, it wasn't studying, it wasn't money, it was people, People were always on Jesus' mind. Young people, old people, white people, black people, rich people, poor people, lost people, found people, broken people, forgotten people, and on and on the list goes. People were always on Jesus' mind. In fact, in all human history, there's never been another person who embodied such a love and preoccupation for people as much as Jesus Christ. I mean, remember just after... The selection of the 12 disciples, you may know the story. Jesus envisioned his disciples with these famous words. He said, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. Another translation says, come with me, I'll make you a new kind of fisherman or a new kind of fisherman out of you. He's telling them in essence that your lives, the people he's speaking to, will no longer be about simply catching fish. You're going to become fishers of people. Now, Jesus wasn't saying there's anything wrong with the fishing business, nor, for that matter, is he saying anything's wrong with the construction business or technology business or pick a business, real estate business. Nothing's wrong with that. What he's saying, though, is in an ultimate sense, he's saying to all his followers that we must learn to be in the people business. From the first day of training school, Jesus drove this value into the people all around him, including his disciples, into the minds and hearts of his followers. 
people matter most. But even for Jesus, that wasn't an easy sell. I mean, think about his own disciples. They would forget things so easily, so quickly, that Jesus, you know, things that Jesus had just talked to them about. And Jesus would have to, you know, come to them and, and have to reset their priorities. I mean, they'd get their priorities all out of sorts, right? Their money, their possessions, their power, their popularity, their conveniences, all of it. And Jesus, we find him on many occasions in all different ways, basically coming to them and saying, hey, disciples, let me reiterate with you one more time. It's all about people. People matter most. And he said that in so many different ways, that it's about loving and serving and helping and restoring and redirecting people. Throughout his entire ministry and over and over again, we see Jesus in the Gospels model and teach this as the highest value. People matter most. He cast vision to those around him. He drove that value deeper and deeper in all kinds of ways, through all kinds of stories, all kinds of moments. And even on the day Jesus faced the most intense torture, physical, emotional, mental torture, as he was preparing to pay for the sins of the world, when the executioners were stripping the clothes off his back, pounding his hands and feet to the cross, Jesus, to the people hammering his hands and feet, Jesus said this, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. One of his very last thoughts when he's on the cross, he has two criminals beside him, and he's thinking about them. He's thinking about the thief on the cross beside him, apparently thinking, I have one more lost guy that needs to be found. All the way till the end, Jesus had people on his mind. And all of this causes us to wonder, it certainly causes me to wonder, why? I mean, what enabled Jesus to be so preoccupied with people, to treasure them above all, to stay focused on people despite tremendous pressure through all the suffering, all the persecution he faced, even when he was going through something as torturous as crucifixion? Why? What's behind all that? And this morning, I want to offer three possible suggestions, all of which I think in the end have really practical implications for every one of our lives. And the first explanation is this, that Jesus understood the heart of his father. Jesus understood the heart of his father. I mean, every time Jesus saw someone put a higher value on something other than people, he would step in and he would say, you must not know my my father's heart very well because if you knew him deeply and if you knew him intimately, you would be behaving quite differently. On one occasion, Jesus and his disciples, they they were refused passage as they were trying to travel through one corner of Samaria, and this ethnic pride kind of welled up inside the disciples, and they asked Jesus, very sincerely, they asked Jesus, if you want, Jesus, we'll call down fire from heaven, and we'll destroy these Samaritan dogs. And Jesus shakes his head. He says, "You you don't get it. In essence, he says, look, you don't understand the Father's heart yet because the Father would put a much higher value on the redemption of the Samaritans than assuaging the wounded pride of 12 Jews. On another occasion, the Pharisees bumped into Jesus as he was interacting with some religious people. The Pharisees started pointing fingers, as they often did, and they were complaining that Jesus was placing inappropriate value on these hell-bound pagans. Why waste your time, they thought. Why waste your time with these misfits, these characters? You shouldn't waste your time. And you remember Jesus' response? 
In essence, he said, with all your knowledge and all your education, clearly you don't know the Father's heart. And then he goes on to tell these three back-to-back stories of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son in Luke 15. He talked about leaving the 99 to go after the one, the relentless pursuit of the one. Jesus ruthlessly drove home to the Pharisees that nothing in this world mattered more to the Father than reclaiming even one wandering soul, even one wayward son or daughter that he loved so much. And the punchline of this whole passage is in verse 10. When the, when the sheep, the coin, the son, they all get found. That's how Jesus tells the story. And what happens is there's a cosmic celebration. It happens when any one person, any single person, crosses the line of faith and enters into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Heaven gets expanded. Every person that crosses the line of faith, every person that says yes to Jesus, I will trust you to be my savior. I will trust what you did on the cross. I will receive you as the free gift of eternal life. Heaven celebrates. Immense amounts of joy that we can't even contain. The heart of heaven explodes with joy for every single person who's reclaimed, who's brought back to life. And over every person who is rescued from darkness to light, Jesus' heart beats for them. Jesus' heart beats for you. Jesus' heart is radically inclusive to all. This was his heartbeat when he walked on earth. This is his heartbeat today, and it will be forever. Because Jesus knew the Father's heart so intimately And then he thoroughly shared his passion and preoccupation with everyone he possibly could. And that preoccupation with people, you know what it produced in him? It produced in in him a radical inclusivity. Wherever he went, to whomever he interacted, whatever age or race or social standing or political standing, right, no matter who they were or what they had done, Jesus embodied irrational acceptance of them. He said, essentially, come as you are. The door of the kingdom of heaven is wide open to you. Yes, even you, even those who don't think it's for you, it's for you. There's hope and there's grace to be found here. You are welcomed into the family. No one in human history has ever had, his, had arms as wide as Jesus. No one has ever cared for people like Jesus. He was radically inclusive. You know, it's funny, for, for any parents in the room, you'll, you'll get this maybe more than, 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 than some, but, but kids come up with these, like, words to describe things, and, and they take on sort of adult words sometimes, and it's a funny, funny word. Hudson has started to use this word that he made up, um, and he says, Dad, I don't want to be discluded. <laughs> right? It's cute, right? Adorable. I know, it's my kid, but it's cute, right? And, and, and I love that, right? I love what he's trying to get at, but it, it's, it's in all of us. None of us want to be discluded, right? And Jesus didn't disclude anybody. That's not a Bible verse, by the way, but, you know, the truth is there. So so the first explanation, Jesus knew the Father's heart, and the Father's heart was radically inclusive. There's a second explanation, along with the first one of knowing the Father's heart. The second one is this, that Jesus understood eternal realities, He understood eternal realities. I mean, if you study the Gospels, it's remarkable how much Jesus' teachings are set in the backdrop of impending eternal realities. 
He reminded people all the time that their days are numbered. He explained to his listeners that no earthly commodity would ever make it from this world to the next. Not property, not money, not possessions. Only one thing. People. All the rest of the stuff gets left behind. In fact, 2 Peter says it all gets melted with a fervent heat. Only people make it to the other side, and the other side is coming. No one escapes death. And then Jesus taught that every human being would be resurrected and spend eternity with God in heaven or isolated without God in hell. And because he understood these eternal realities and believed them to the core of his being, he focused his full attention on the only treasure that would extend from this world to the next. And then here's what he does. He challenges his followers to do the same. I mean, remember his, his words in uh, Matthew 16. He says, and what... Do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? I mean, Jesus looked at people and he asked them. He said, look, be smart about life. Think it through. Because you're going to be in eternity a lot longer than you're going to spend time in this life. He said on another occasion, don't store up treasures here on earth where moss eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal Jesus talked about treasures in heaven here, and those treasures, by that he meant people. In the end, they all matter. When we look at Jesus' life, he doesn't live with a frenetic urgency, though, in all this. Rather, he lives with this calculated sense of urgency as he loved and served and restored people. He embodied this kind of urgency that caused him to change his travel plans on some occasions for the sake of another person who needed to hear about God. He had the kind of urgency that motivated him to confront, in one case, a wealthy young leader about the condition of his soul in Matthew 19. He had the kind of urgency that prompted him to send his disciples out to be witnesses in a hostile world, saying, make no mistake, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. And on and on the examples went. In essence, he told his disciples, your ministry will be at times excruciatingly difficult. You'll face opposition and resistance, persecution even. It's going to be risky, downright defeating at times, and it was. But the upside is so huge. One more treasure, one more human being snatched from the clutches of a horrendous eternity. So go right now, Jesus would say. Pack your bags and give your life to it. Because people are what matter. Their eternities matter. And again, nobody in human history has ever placed such value on people. They were always on his mind, every moment. Jesus knew the Father's heart. He also lived with an eternal perspective. The third explanation is that Jesus believed in the possibilities for people. He believed in their potential now, we live in the Silicon Valley, so we know this maybe more than some. We know that firsthand entrepreneurs, they see the possibilities, right, of a product, of a service. They usually do it before anybody else does, and because of their foresight, they build the great companies of our day. Or take the arena of sports, March Madness is happening. Great college coaches, they see great possibilities and potential and talents in these young high school students, and because of their vision, they can build a great sports program or dynasty with remarkable success. And Jesus, too, had vision. He had a supernatural foresight into people. 
He had the uncanny ability to look past the flaws and the messiness of people's lives, and he envisioned who they could become if the power of God got released in their lives. And then he would seek to draw out those possibilities. He would empower people by seeing who they could become, helping them find and follow Jesus as the path to get there. I mean, you can just think a couple of examples, but who else could have seen the hidden philanthropist in Zacchaeus, if you know that story, the crooked tax collector? Who else could have seen the apostle Peter hiding out in the skin of that fisherman? And Saul, oh my goodness, right? The persecutor of the church, the hater of all Christians, who's the one who wrote about half the New Testament. He had his moment on the road to Damascus, and Jesus saw the potential. Jesus looked at people differently. He never got bogged down by the current sinful reality in people's lives. He looked past it, and he saw possibility. He understood the grace and the power of God that it can change a human life, that it can change the entire trajectory of someone's existence. God in Jesus' form, right? Jesus in the flesh. His mantra was all things are possible with this man, with this woman, with this child. And God wants to not only redeem and transform every person, but he wants to use them to help redeem and transform the rest of the world. Jesus had a different vision for people's lives, and it resulted in him treating every person he interacted with very differently, and people responded to that. Many were transformed by that, by his unswerving belief in their potential. His supernatural vision Right, was infused into their life, and it gave him unwavering optimism about people and what could be. And he interacted with people from all walks of life, and, and, and he kept insisting on things like this. The old can become new. The fallen can become restored. The wanderers can come home. The weak can become strong. The lost can become found. I love what this pastor, Bill Hybels, who's really influenced me in this message and beyond. And and he says this, really simply put, Jesus kept believing in the power of God to transform a human life. I believe that. If you're a follower of Christ, you ought to believe that. That the power of God can transform not only your life, but through your life can transform the lives of others. That's the belief that Jesus carried with him. That's the belief he wants to impart into our hearts, into our minds, into our lives. And we could go on about explanations of why Jesus lived with people on his mind, why he was so preoccupied. And there's no doubt there's other reasons, but those are simply three that are central. Jesus understood the heart of the Father. Jesus understood eternal realities. Jesus believed in the possibilities for people. And with those three truths in mind, and with the minutes that we, re- that we have together this morning, I want to share how those truths can have sim- significant implications for our lives. In Romans 8, verse 29, it tells us that the goal of every Christ follower is to be completely conformed to the image of Christ, that we would become increasingly more like him. In other words, Jesus... Jesus' followers are are to be increasingly people who think and feel and act and behave just as Jesus would. And in the context of what we're talking about, let's see where these three realities intersect. I mean, first, this would involve us, just like Jesus, coming to know the Father's heart. 
coming to know it so fully, so deeply, that we would live with that same radical inclusivity that Jesus had. I mean, just imagine every one of us being radically inclusive. Imagine if that was the tribe of Jesus' followers and that was what we were known for, radically inclusive. It would have an impact in our world, I think. If we knew the Father's heart so well that we would develop his focus and heart for human beings and we would walk around every day with people on our minds. If you're a follower of Jesus, you ascribe to the people business. That's the intent. That's our fundamental mission in life, to be a radically inclusive Jesus follower and to help other people meet Jesus too, to throw our arms open wide, to care about people from all walks of life. Jesus said it very clearly in John 20, as the Father has sent me, so now I am sending you. We are a people on mission. We are ambassadors for Christ. To love the world and share the good news of Jesus to our world, we are called. If we are followers of Jesus, we are called to that. And this is fueled by experiencing intimately and deeply and understanding the Father's heart. So that we walk around every day with the Spirit of God, whatever assignment you have for me. What do you want me to say or not say? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to behave? Who do you want me to pray for? That's the Father's heart. And he wants to mold that inside of us. Because when that kind of heart is formed in us, the way we relate to people, the way we engage with the world, the way we feel about people, the way we go about loving people completely and radically changes. We all have to look deep inside our hearts and be honest with this one. Do you share the Father's heart? Do you know the Father's heart? Because he wants you to. Is his agenda more important than your agenda? Or is your agenda and your popularity and your need to be right and your own pursuits, does that dominate your life, your behavior, your actions? Do you so share the Father's heart that you're becoming increasingly inclusive? Does the way you interact with people reveal that your heart is not connecting authentically with the Father, but also that your heart is becoming like the Father's heart? Right? That, that's what we have to do a heart check on. I mean, I never forget the, the, a few years ago I, I came across this, uh, this research that, that's fairly widely known now, and the research said this about, about Christians, that the longer someone is a Christian, the less and less people who, are, who, who don't believe the same things that they do are, are in their life the less apt they are to invite someone to church, the less apt they are to actually share their faith. The longer someone's a Christian, the less and less relationships they have with people who are not. And when I read the Bible, and I'm challenged by this myself, when I read the Bible, that's quite the opposite of what it teaches. It was a disturbing thing to to, to see that research and, and, and think about that. Because scripture says the opposite. Because because think about it. The longer we walk with God, the more love we've received from him, this is the way it ought to go, the more knowledge of him we attain, the more God's faithfulness we experience, the more answers to prayer we see, the more manifestations of his grace and provision, and on and on it goes. The more we walk with God, the more we should share his preoccupation, passion, and compassion for people. It would inevitably lead to a greater heart, a bigger heart, for people outside the family of God. When we interact with people, 
albeit family, friends, neighbors, acquaintances, whomever, our intent, the, the intent God gives us is to say, love them, care for them, serve them, help them, come alongside them in the journey, believe in possibilities for them. I mean, I, I remember this, this pastor actually explained kind of a, a physical vis, visual sort of explanation of, of this idea that, that um, as, we, as we worship God more, right, so imagine kind of vertical, like we're worshiping God more, right, we're growing in our faith, we're learning to love God more. Imagine my hands widening like this, right? As our worship for God grows this way, right, now horizontally, our love for people ought to do the same. And I love the worship at this church. I love the worship movement that exists out there. I'm all for that. But I'll tell you one thing. If the worship movement seems to be going like this and the people of God are going like this, there's a problem. To love God, Jesus said, and to love others is the greatest commandment. And that's my challenge for you this morning. Is your heart for others going like this? Because these two should be in sync. And if it's not, you need a heart check. Because as that heart of God, as we get to know the, the Father's heart and understand it, you know, and our, our heart starts working right. I, I love how First Peter 3 says it. It says this, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Right? To know the gospel, to know your faith. But then it says this. We leave this out sometimes. But do this with gentleness and respect. Don't leave that behind. Why? Well, the Father's heart is one of gentleness and respect. It's not one where you force it. And sometimes we force it. Yeah, I love this quote from the book, uh, Renovation of the Heart, Dallas Willard. He says this, Every contact with a human being should be one of goodwill and respect, with a readiness to acknowledge Make way for or assist the other in suitable ways. There's no such thing as an interaction that you have with a person that God is not interested in. And that goes for people who have never stepped foot in the church. It goes for people who have left the church a long time ago and everybody in between. I love the spirit of intentionality in James chapter 5 says this. If you know people who have wandered off from God's truth, don't write them off. Go after them. Get them back. You see God's heart and pursuit of people. And we are to be that same people. I love Acts 15, 9. says this. Luke's writing this, right? He says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles. This is the gospel spreading in this moment in Acts. That we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Should not make it difficult. I remember my friend Michael, a number of years ago now, Michael began to come to church. He had lots of questions at the time. He would have called himself an agnostic. He sort of took a risk and said, I'm curious, I'm asking questions, I'll try your church out. Many months passed, lots of conversations happened, and, and Michael eventually came to faith in Jesus, which was an awesome moment. And a week later, you know, he'd been coming to our church for quite a while at that time, and a week later he comes up to me and he says, hey, I want to start a small group. <laughs> I said, awesome, right, let's do it, I'll help you. And he said, okay, and then he said this. He said, I want to invite all my AA friends. I said, that would be awesome. Let's do it, right? So I show up at his apartment. He says, I'll get everybody there. 
I helped him kind of prep uh, a little bit because I thought, you have a relationship with him. Why don't you lead it? Right? And I was to kind of help him along. And, and, and I get there, and there's a dozen people who don't believe in Jesus who are there to study the Bible and talk about Jesus. And Michael, I'll never forget, well, one side note, he, I, we get there and we finally circle up after small talk. He says, all right, Steve, take it away. And I was like, what? You know? And, um, and I just asked this big whopper Jesus question. So what do you think about Jesus? You know, and there it went. But it was an amazing, authentic, real, raw conversation. But I'll never forget what Michael said to me. I asked him, why, why did you want to do this? I was curious, kind of what was in his heart. And he said, because I wanted to make it as easy as possible for them to know and experience Jesus and what he's really like. I thought, oh, my goodness, right? You get it. <laughs> Several of those people, as the years went on, came to faith in Christ, which is an amazing thing. And I love Michael's heart, but that ought to be the heart that gets birthed inside of you. When you know the Father's heart and you experience it, you go radically inclusive. You go, how can I make this as easy as possible? How can I do it with gentleness and respect? How can I pursue people with love and compassion? The longer we walk with God, the better we ought to know him. The clearer also we ought to be getting about the impending eternal realities. The death rate is still 100%. Jesus had such a grasp of time, and it gave him such a calculated sense of urgency. Hebrews 9 says, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Acts 4.12 says, there's no other name given to men by which we may be saved, Jesus. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And the prayer I often try to pray in my own life is, God, give me greater awareness of eternal realities. Help me, help me to live with more urgency and passion. God, let me not lose the spirit of urgency that I know you want me to live with. And I don't always live with that, I assure you. But I do think God wants us to pray for that. Put that in us, God. Help us to see with eternal eyes and perspective. Help me not get absorbed in my own life that I stop thinking about people. People who are headed for a Christless eternity. Eternity is hanging in the balance, most likely of dozens of people that you know. Family, neighbors, coworkers, friends. And the scriptures call us to be available to God to help those people in their journey who are searching for God, find God. And maybe, maybe, those people are in your life for a reason. Maybe they know you. I know there are people that, that I have met have said, that's the only Christian I know. And according to the Bible, right, the time is short. At some point, time will run out. And there really is a heaven and there really is a hell. And real people go to both places. This is life and death. This is eternal life and eternal death. This is what Jesus talked about. This is what the Bible teaches. And God has put us right in the middle of it all. How many of us need to invite God, ask God, plead with God for a greater sense of urgency? How many of us need to be reminded not to be so preoccupied with all the stuff of life, and there's a lot of stuff, and forget about what and who matters most? People. How many of us are really willing to change our schedule if we have to and reorder our lives around God's agenda to help people know God? There's been people in my life, 
I've been so inspired by along these lines. People that I've just kind of sat there and go, I wish I loved people like them. I wish I reached out to people or served people or helped people or cared so much and was preoccupied with people like them. I mean, I had a mentor a number of years ago. He used to have a little basketball court in his backyard, and he would constantly invite people to play basketball. Some people, ah, they didn't like basketball, right? Then he'd say, all right, we're going to play basketball, then we're going to do a barbecue after you come to the barbecue. And I sat there on more than one occasion and as we played basketball, there would be conversations on the side when we're dripping sweat and drinking Gatorade about faith and Jesus. There would be conversations at the barbecue around the grill, right? Twelve of us sometimes sitting at the table. I'll never forget the one moment the guy, he met on an airplane and invited to play basketball. And he came and we're eating, you know, ribs and such. And he's leading him to Christ and the whole table's watching. Amazing moment. Relentless about bringing people into his life had urgency. I have a friend I just talked to a couple weeks ago, and he says, every week I try to have a meal with three people who are far from God, who have questions about God, who are, you know, don't even believe in God. Three, three people every week. I just try to bless them and serve them and love them. I don't force anything. I just, I just want to live life with them and see what God does. Oh, my goodness, I love that. And I'll never forget when I was in college, the two guys, David and Kevin, that came alongside me when I was struggling to figure out what I believe and they sat with me in more than one moment, many moments. And they, their friendship became these sort of guardrails that helped me figure out life and faith in God. And I'll never forget the moment I said yes to Jesus when I was in college. And I thought those two guys were so significant. And there were others along the way that were too. The common thread here is that these people lived with an eternal perspective. And thus they had this urgency and intentionality that came with how they lived their life, how they related to people. And then finally, there's this third reason that Jesus is preoccupied with people that intersects our life. I mean, he could look past all the muck of people's lives. He could see the possibilities. He believed in people that if God's power was released in them, if he kept loving them, if he kept lifting them to their potential, kept helping them see what God might do in their life, how God could use them and change them, Jesus did that with so many people. And I have a friend who, he, he once was a Hindu, and he got invited to church, and he came to church, and he later told me, I only came because I didn't want to disrespect the invitation. So he comes to church, and then uh, he sticks. He goes, I kind of like this church better than my Hindu church. I'm like, awesome, glad you're here, man, right? And many months went by, I began to pick him up and take him to church, and we had all these amazing conversations. He had so many questions. I learned so much from him. I mean, you know, the dialogue went on. And I'll never forget the day he comes running out of church to me. And he says, I did it. And I played dumb. <laughs> I said, you did what? <laughs> he goes, I made a decision to follow Jesus. And I was like, awesome, celebrated with him. And I said, did you tell anybody and he said, no, I'm telling you. <laughs> I said, let's tell God. Let's talk to God. You know, and he prayed right there. I just let him pray. And it was just authentic, beautiful, amazing prayer. Maybe the most beautiful prayer I've ever even heard. And, and later he told me, he said, you know what really compelled me? He said, there's this talk about you believe in God. And I'm for that. I believe in God now. Right? At one point he, he made, um, he, he made the, the God of our church one of his gods then he made, he like narrowed it down to three, and then he said, all right, I'm ready for the one, right, kind of deal. And, um, and he said, you know, you talk about believing in Jesus, and I believe in Jesus, but what compelled me and what brought me to that place was that the people of Jesus believed in me. I thought, oh my goodness, right? What if we were that people? 
And what if we believed in the people around us that don't maybe believe yet what we believe, but we believe it to our core. And we begin to believe in people much like Jesus did and the possibilities that if someone would meet Jesus, everything would change. And that that actually still happens. That it happened to you, many of you, and that can happen to another. We live in a day in a post-Christian, almost um, you know, dead Christian world, right, where there's not a lot of openness, it seems like. But I, but I, but I want to say this. There's an openness to God that's embedded into every soul. Ecclesiastes says there's eternity in their hearts. We got to look for it. We got to act right, live right, be right. We got to love people. We got to live with the right perspective. We got to know the Father's heart. And here's three final words I just want to give you as sort of takeaways this morning. They're really simple. And I'm going to call the band back up for one final song as well. They all kind of rhyme, so you can remember them. We've talked about them before. Prayer, care, and share. If you want to know what to do in all of this, man, prayer, right? And there's two real aspects of that. Know the Father's heart. Carve out time to be with the Father. Get to know him. That's your fuel. You begin to come, become like him. And then take that heart of prayer and pray for your friends. Pray for the people that don't know you. Put a little note card by your bed or, or in your car or on your refrigerator or in your bathroom and pray for somebody. And then care, right? Care. This, it, it doesn't come without caring for people in your life. Who are the people in your life that you care about that don't believe the same things you believe? They're on a search. They have questions. You don't even know what they believe, but you're going to love them and you're going to care about them. With radical inclusivity. You're going you're to be optimistic about what God can do in their life, the possibilities, the potential. Prayer, care, and then share. They will not know if we do not share, the Bible tells us. 1 John 5 says, those who believe in the Son of God have the testimony of God in them. The testimony of God for those who are followers of Christ in this room is inside of you. Share it. Share it in love. It is not your responsibility to cross the line of faith for someone or to force anything. But the Bible calls us to be sharers, to be ambassadors, to be proclaimers of the gospel. Share your story. Share your life with others. 1 Peter 2.9 says, tell others the difference God made in you. You are the message. You're the carrier of the gospel. And Romans 6.13 says, give yourselves fully to God, every part of you, to be tools in the hands of God, to be used for good purposes. So the question is, will you choose every day to live this way? To always have people on your mind and in your heart. To pray for people. To care for people. To share with people. That the God of the universe loves you. That he loves you and he loves them. That eternity hangs in the balance that this unconditional, irrational kind of love, seen most at the cross with Jesus' hands spread wide, that he came to be the Savior of all humanity because he loves us. He loves us. He loves us.